1: And hello, friends. We welcome you to another episode of Now Appalachia, the podcast program that profiles authors and publishers with connections to the Appalachian region and how those connections influence and impact their works. I'm your host, Elliot Parker, and it's great to have you with us today. We are talking about history. We're talking about history from the Civil War period. And more importantly, we're talking about a brand new book by historian Jonathan White. It is called A House Built by Slaves. And this is a great new book. It's a rich and comprehensive account about an aspect of Abraham Lincoln's presidency that you may not know much about. Or if you do know something about it, you might not know what its significance is. And we're going to talk about that with uh, Jonathan White today here on the program about this and what he has uh, in this book and how it's connected to uh, the Lincoln presidency, Abraham Lincoln, uh, and everything that happened uh, during that period of his presidency in the mid-1860s. And Jonathan White joins us. He's an associate professor of American studies. At Christopher Newport University. He's the author or editor of 12 books and more than 100 articles, essays, and reviews about the Civil War. His earlier book, Emancipation, the Union Army, and the Reelection of Abraham Lincoln, was named a Best Book of 2014 by Civil War Monitor and was also a finalist for both the Gilder Lehrman Lincoln Prize and the Jefferson Davis Prize, and it did win the Abraham Lincoln Institute's 2015 Book Prize. His recent book, Our Little Monitor, The Greatest Invention of the Civil War, which was co-authored by Anna Gibson and with Anna Gibson Holloway, was a finalist for the Indy Book Award and an honorable mention for the John Lyman Book Award. He serves on the board of directors of the Abraham Lincoln Institute, the Abraham Lincoln Association, and the Lincoln Forum, and in 2019, he won the Outstanding Faculty Award of the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia, which is the highest award given to faculty in the Commonwealth, a, a very uh, outstanding and prestigious prize for sure. And we are so glad to have uh, John White on with us today to talk to us about his new book, A House Built by Slaves. So uh, John, welcome to the program. It is really great to have you with us today.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: I wanted to ask you first, before we dive into some of the specifics of your book, what got you interested in, in Abraham Lincoln and in this particular aspect of his presidency, in which we look at and which you look at uh, uh, African-Americans, uh, slaves that were welcomed to the White House and other African-American dignitaries that were welcome to the White House to meet with Lincoln. What got you interested in that? What got you fascinated by that part of Lincoln's story in his presidency?
2: Well, I think I became a Lincoln guy around 2009 when I started researching a book on Abraham Lincoln and civil liberties during the Civil War, And it's just been ever since then, I've just been completely taken with the man and and done more and more research on him. In 2014, I started collecting letters from African-Americans to Lincoln, and I actually published them as a book in October with the University of North Carolina Press. And it's called To Address You As My Friend, African-Americans Letters to Abraham Lincoln. And I originally wanted to have a book that brought together the correspondence and conversations that African-Americans had with Lincoln. I very quickly realized that it was too much for one book. So I pulled the letters out, did them as a book of their own, and then on Lincoln's birthday this year published A House Built by Slaves, which tells the stories of the hundreds of African-Americans who met with Lincoln at the White House.
1: It's, It's a fantastic story, and it's something that Uh, people who uh, have studied Lincoln or taken classes in Lincoln uh, know about, but you do such a great job of really peeling the layers back into who came and why they came and what were the conversations that they had. And you also do a very good job of kind of setting the story for how we get to this point with Lincoln's life. And and I wanted to ask you about an event that you write about kind of early on in the book. Um, And and this is when um, Lincoln was 19 years old, Um, He and an associate sort of barred, uh, got a load of produce and other goods to take to New Orleans. Um, He got there, but he was attacked by some local slaves. I think there were seven of them that attacked him, and and they tried to steal the load uh, of information or the load of goods from him. Um, And I just wanted to uh, ask you a little bit about that, because we get a sense that that experience and, and that memory for him, uh, really kind of shaped his perspective on the slave trade. Can you talk about the significance of that event uh, to Lincoln and, and and why he began to kind of see uh, the slave trade that was going on in that period in American history, why he started to see that as, as important but differently?
2: Yeah, Lincoln made two trips to New Orleans, Once one in 1828 and one in 1831. And on that particular trip, he went with a, another young man named Alan Gentry. And it's this really incredible moment where they are camped on the the side of the Mississippi River down in Louisiana, they get attacked by seven slaves who either want to kill them or beat them up or just steal from them, and these two white men Lincoln and Gentry are getting beaten up by the other seven, and Gentry has the thought to yell, Lincoln get the guns and shoot, and that scares away their seven attackers. And there's incredible (laughs) irony in that moment because some of those men were probably still alive 30 years later when Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation and would have become free under that edict. In both of these cases, 1828 and 1831, when Lincoln makes it to New Orleans, he sees the slave trade, he sees young girls being sold, light-skinned in some instances, and it transforms the way he thinks about slavery, and it it horrifies and disgusts him, and he always talked about always hating slavery. I think his hatred for slavery really was born in a real way in these trips where he saw it firsthand and just saw how brutal and disgusting the slave trade could be. And his kind of first attitudes about
1: uh, about slavery and the slave trade, even were formed earlier than that. You know, I think we know a lot about Lincoln. You know, growing up poor and, and not having a lot of money. But you you write about how in 1816, prior to this trip uh, uh, down to New Orleans, that Lincoln's family moved to the free part of Indiana because his father was was really disgusted with the slave trade. Uh, can you talk about that and, and about his father's influence on Lincoln to sort of planting the early seeds for his view on slavery?
2: Yeah, so they moved to Indiana for two reasons, I should specify. So the one reason had to do with land titles. His father, Thomas Lincoln, had purchased a lot of land in Kentucky and had gotten embroiled in lawsuits. And in Kentucky, they followed the old Virginia way of measuring out ground, which was by meets and bounds rather than surveying it. So kind of like, you know, I own the land from this rock to that tree. And the problem is, of course, these sort of landmarks can move or change or disappear. And so Thomas Lincoln got involved in some lawsuits and lost money. And he wanted to move to Indiana where they actually surveyed the land. The federal government was overseeing it and you knew exactly what you were buying and you didn't have to worry about those kind of lawsuits. But then Lincoln did say that they also moved partly on account of slavery. Lincoln had been born and grown up in Kentucky, which was a slave state, and his parents went to an anti-slavery Baptist church, a primitive Baptist church, and so they did move partly on account of slavery to get out of a slave state into the free state of Kentucky. And generally speaking, what kind of relationship did Lincoln have with his father? it was not a good relationship. Lincoln's father was very hard on him. Lincoln's father didn't value education in the way that young Abraham Lincoln did. And actually, by the end of his father's life, Lincoln chose not to go see his father before he died. And he sent a letter to his stepbrother basically saying, it wouldn't be pleasant if I was to come see father before he dies. So they, they had a really tense and unfortunate relationship. If we fast forward the story a little bit later on uh, in
1: Lincoln's early life, um, he was uh, a member of uh, of the state uh, legislature um, and also, um, you know, did a lot with politics in that vein. But when he was a member of the state house, a significant moment in American history happened that he got to witness, and that is the Kansas Nebraska Act, uh, which was which kind of opened up uh, that part of the country. To slavery. And then later on, Lincoln was um, watching as the Dred Scott decision uh, was rendered by the Supreme Court. Can you talk about those two events, how Lincoln saw those, and uh, what kind of impact those had on on his thinking of this issue of slavery as as he starts to kind of move into the the middle portion of his life?
2: Yeah. So the Kansas Nebraska Act was a law pushed through Congress by Ah. Lincoln's primary political rival in the 1850s, a senator named Stephen Douglas. Douglas wanted to get a railroad that would go from San Francisco to Chicago because he wanted all that gold coming in from the gold rush into his home state. And the only way that Southerners would go along with that was if if Douglas got a law through Congress that repealed the Missouri Compromise and opened up the territories to slavery. So the Missouri Compromise had sort of drawn a line through the Louisiana Purchase and north of that line, except for Missouri, was free territory. And what Southerners wanted Douglas to do was repeal that line, repeal that law from 1820 and allow slavery to move into the, what was now known as the Kansas, Nebraska territories. So Douglas did that. He got this law through Congress and it allowed for a a theory known as popular sovereignty. The white people who moved to Kansas, Nebraska could decide for themselves, are we going to have slavery or are we not going to have slavery? And what what ended up happening was, people flock into Kansas, pro-slavery or southerners or anti-slavery northerners, and they end up destroying each other, bludgeoning each other, burning their houses down, killing each other in in cold blood in a period known as Bleeding Kansas. And Lincoln was really horrified by this violence going on in Kansas, this violence that this law brought about, this Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1854, And it's believed that he ghost wrote some anonymous articles for the local newspaper criticizing the Kansas-Nebraska Act. He then in October of 1854 would give what's now a very famous speech in Peoria, Illinois, where he talks about how this law is trampling on the blood of the founders and it's trampling on the ideals of 1776. Then in 1857, the Supreme Court issues its I think most infamous decision, the Dred Scott decision, where the court says that African Americans are not citizens and cannot sue in the federal courts and the court also says that Congress cannot legislate regarding slavery in the territories, meaning that that old Missouri Compromise that had already been repealed, the court now struck down as unconstitutional even though it was no longer a law, and the court finally said that the due process clause of the 5th amendment guaranteed white Southerners a fundamental right to own slaves. And these holdings by the Supreme Court infuriated Lincoln. And he gave a speech in 1857 in Springfield, Illinois, where again, he he talks about how this ruling is trampling on the ideals of the founding fathers as articulated in the Declaration of Independence. Lincoln argues that all men are created equal means all people of all colors. And he tries to make the case in in that speech that even black women deserve the rights that are embodied in the Declaration of Independence. And you really see Lincoln coming out with some of the ideas that are gonna come to fruition in his presidency where he begins to start to articulate a view that black people deserve citizenship rights. He's gonna do that again in his first inaugural address. And then I think through the course of meeting with African-Americans during the civil war, his views on Black political rights begin to change so that by the end of his life, he's calling for Black voting rights. And it, there's a it's this period, I think, from the mid-1850s to the mid-1860s that you see that transformation take place.
1: We're speaking with Jonathan White here on Now Appalachia. He's the author of the terrific new book about Abraham Lincoln's presidency. It's called A House Built by Slaves. And John, I wanted to ask you um, uh, about... Uh, how all this gets started. So so Lincoln is elected in 1860. Um, One of the things I always find fascinating about this period in American history is that uh, people, ordinary citizenry could go and talk to the president. And he had almost like office hours, like we would think of uh, uh, in a college setting, you know, where you could go meet with the president and actually talk with him and speak with him, something that just would never happen today. But in terms of, of setting this up for African-Americans to be able to come to the White House and meet with Lincoln, why did he decide to do that? And, and how did he set this up? And how were the people that got to come and see him individually? How were they selected? How were they, they vetted? How did all of this start in terms of him being able to, to set this up
2: where these, these African-Americans could come speak with him? So he, beginning in 1861, any white American, as you alluded to, any white American who wanted to, could go to the White House early in the morning, wait in line for a while, and then by the time when it got to be their turn, go into Lincoln's office and talk to him about anything they wanted. And so if your listeners have seen the Lincoln movie, the Spielberg Lincoln movie, you get a sense of that where this husband and wife come in from, from Missouri and they wanna to talk to Lincoln about this toll road that they own. And while that was a fictional scene in the movie, that's exactly what happened in Lincoln's presidency. For the first year, it's only white Americans who claim this sort of access to the president. But beginning in April of 1862, Black Americans do it as well. And in most of the cases, it's not orchestrated by Lincoln. It is people who just want to go to the White House. They go uninvited, unannounced. They show up, they present their card, and they wait their turn to meet the president. In some cases, in a very famous one in August of 1862, Lincoln invited a Black delegation of leaders from Washington, D.C. to come meet with him. That was a first in American presidential history where a president invites a delegation of black leaders to come and talk about politics. But in most cases, it was black people on their own deciding we are going to avail ourselves of this sort of open door policy and go in and meet the president.
1: And what was Lincoln hoping to accomplish by that? What was he hoping to accomplish by meeting, as you mentioned, with the, with the delegation, meeting with uh, ordinary citizens? We'll talk in just a couple minutes about some of the people that that spoke to Lincoln then that you write about and what they had to say. But what was he trying to accomplish? Because we, we forget in this that he is a politician uh, and, and he is going to run for reelection in 1864. Um, but what was he trying to accomplish by, by with these
2: meetings and with talking with African-Americans? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it's it's a complicated one. It really depends meeting by meeting. So if someone shows up and simply comes in and says, I need help with such and such issue in my life, then he seeks to accomplish what he can to help them. And there are known instances where poor African-American women came to the White House and they needed money, they needed assistance, and Lincoln did what he could to help them find it. In one case, he saw a poor man standing outside of the White House and the man needed food. And so Lincoln actually called the man into his into the White House and said, what do you need? And the man said, I hear that you have provisions and that the Constitution has provisions. And he was kind of confusing. This man was confusing the meaning of the word provisions in terms of in the Constitution versus food and supplies. And Lincoln kind of laughed at that joke or not joke, but that misunderstanding and then told his one of the White House staff, take the man down to the kitchen and give him food. The most infamous meeting that Lincoln had was in August of 1862. And this is the one I alluded to a few minutes ago. In this case, Lincoln had decided to issue an emancipation proclamation, but he was waiting for the moment to do it. And while he was waiting for that right moment, he did a couple of things to prepare the Northern electorate for what he knew was coming. Lincoln knew that most white Northerners would not support emancipation. He knew that they were racist and did not want slaves to become free because they would become an economic competitor for white workers in the North. They might depress wages or take away jobs. And so Lincoln wanted to persuade the the white northern electorate that they didn't need to be afraid of emancipation. So in this one really infamous meeting, and it's the one that's different from every other, Lincoln invites a black delegation of leaders from Washington, D.C. to come to the White House in August of 62. And he then lectures them on why they should leave the country through a process known as colonization. (laughs) And for 45 minutes, he tells them, your people are the cause of the war. And if you weren't here, white people wouldn't be cutting each other's throats. And so you should take your people to Liberia or to Panama, somewhere where you'd be well-suited for the climate. I mean, it was just very condescending and unfortunate. And it's one of these things where, you know, as a Lincoln guy, I just wish he had never done this. But the reason he did it is he wanted the white electorate in the north to realize that if emancipation came, they didn't need to be as worried about it as maybe they would be. And so he wanted them to know that he was thinking about colonization. And I, I do want to make a very two very important points here. The first is, Lincoln never supported forced deportation. He, Some people today say he wanted to deport all black people out of the country. That's just not true. He was trying to push for colonization that the federal government would pay for, for, for those who willingly wanted to leave. And the second is, while Lincoln did believe in colonization for much of his adult life, I, I think he knew he was using this as a way of trying to act politically. And shortly after this meeting, he called a black leader named Henry McNeil Turner to the White House and essentially said to Turner, you don't need to worry about this colonization thing. He said, I need somewhere to point to. In other words, it's like he was creating a distraction for the white Northern electorate. And Turner wrote about this in a Black religious newspaper. And I think Lincoln was hoping to essentially say to Black Americans, yeah, I'm doing this, I'm saying this, but you don't, just like he didn't want white Northerners to be too worried, he doesn't want Black Northerners to be too worried about it either.
1: We are speaking with, um, we're talking primarily about a brand new book called A House Built by Slaves. We're speaking with author Jonathan White today uh, about this book, and Jonathan will come back. Uh, to this book here in just a second. I, I wanted to ask you, uh, I know that uh, being a historian and writing about history is, is uh, v- very involved. There's a lot of research and note-taking and uh, so many things I know that they go into it because we've had other historians on the program to talk about their books. So when you're not reading history or working on a history project or working on a, a historical book, what are some things you like to read? Who are some authors that you uh, like to uh, partake in if you're not doing historical research or reading about history?
2: Oh, that's a great question. I I think I'm almost always reading history because I'm always thinking about a project that I want to work on or something that I'm doing research. So I haven't read for pleasure in a very long time, but when I do read non-fiction, or sorry, when I do read fiction, it often is 19th century fiction or 19th century poetry. So I love Henry Wadsworth Longfellow and his story and his writings. And I've always been a fan of Herman Melville and some of those other great 19th century writers. So when I'm reading, even if it's for pleasure and it's it's fiction, it's usually 19th century, just to keep my head in the game, as it were. Who are some other historians whose work you really admire? There's a lot of wonderful Civil War and Lincoln scholars writing today. My mentor when I was in graduate school is a Pulitzer Prize winning, or undergrad, I should say, is a Pulitzer Prize winning historian at Penn State named Mark Neely. And I learned so much from him. Harold Holzer is a wonderful writer on Lincoln. Michael Burlingame and Alan Gelzo have done incredible biographies of Lincoln. So those are a lot of the, the folks that I love to read.
1: I just finished uh, Alan Gelzo's book on Robert E. Lee, which is just fantastic. Yeah. Um, if, if you like this period in history and you uh, want to know more uh, about the Civil War, but, but maybe more about the Confederate side of the Civil War and, and Robert E. Lee, it was a, it was a terrific book. I, I'm a huge fan of Al- Alan Gels, though, too. I, I love his work uh, uh, on this particular period. I, I want to ask you one more question. This is kind of a loaded question before we go back to uh, talking about your book. Um, I'm always amazed that uh, there are so many wonderful books uh, written about Lincoln. And it seems like historians like yourself, I, I, Alan Guelzo, and others from this period are always finding new things to tell us about Lincoln, his life, his presidency, his values, his beliefs on, on issues uh, of his time. Do you ever think we will, we will run out of things to say about Lincoln? In other words, will there, will, there, will there be a time when historians have called over all the information and we've told every story that there is to tell about Lincoln? or is he one of these kind of ethereal figures that we'll be thinking about and writing about maybe forever? What what are your thoughts on that?
2: It's funny. People have been asking that question for a century. In 1936, there was a great scholar named James Garfield Randall who, who gave a speech that he then published as an article called, Has the Lincoln Theme Been Exhausted? And so in 1936, he was wondering, have we said enough? Have we found all there is to say And all these years later, the answer is clearly no, there's still a lot more to be said. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that there are so many records that have yet to be discovered. So in the book that I did in October, the collection of letters from African-Americans to Lincoln, and then the book that we're talking about today, A House Built by Slaves, both of these books bring together new material that I was able to find to a large extent because of digitization. So a lot of the meetings that I write about with Lincoln in the book where he's meeting African-Americans, I found in digitized newspapers. And I spent dozens and dozens and dozens of hours going through newspapers, searching for all sorts of different sort of combinations of keywords to see what I could find. And you find a newspaper correspondent or someone in Washington, D.C., who was at the White House and describes Lincoln meeting with an African-American. And in the olden days, if you were, you would have to spend a lifetime reading microfilm newspapers and you might never find a fraction of the things I was able to find simply because newspapers.com and redex and Genealogy Bank have digitized millions of pages of newspapers. So I think that as more records become available and as more records become digitized, we're going to keep finding new things to say about Lincoln. And, you know, the National Archives, has millions of pages of documents from the Civil War. And there are a lot of stories buried in there that have yet to be uncovered.
1: Very good. Very good. Jonathan White is our guest on the program today. This is Now Appalachia, and we're talking about his new book, A House Built by Slaves. And it is the book about uh, Abraham Lincoln and his conversations and visits. Uh, with African-Americans, uh, I want to ask you one question. I, I loved how you, you touched on this in your book about the media's role in all of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, as these African-Americans were coming, you talked about the delegation. I'll ask you about another uh, uh, person here in just a moment who, whose story I found fascinating that comes to talk to Lincoln. But how did the media respond to this? What was the coverage like uh, both sort of what we consider kind of in the beltway in the D.C. area and maybe uh, across the country as word got out that Lincoln was welcoming African-Americans uh, to the White House for
2: conversations. What, how did the media respond and, and report on this? Well, it depended on the newspaper. So in the 19th century, newspapers were unabashedly partisan. If you were in a city, you had a Republican newspaper and a Democratic newspaper. And if you were a Republican, you read that side. And if you were Democrat, you read that side. And there was no pretense of impartiality or modern journalism like we pretend to have today. I mean, I think our press is still very partisan today. They pretend that it's not, but it is. Back then, they at least owned up to it. And each paper would say, yeah, we are Republican or we are Democrat. So the Republican papers are generally supportive of what Lincoln is doing. The Democratic papers are outraged by what Lincoln is doing. And when they report on Lincoln meeting with Black people at the White House, they're furious about it. And they think that this is a sign that Lincoln is trying to trample on the rights of white people and take away white citizenship and create black citizenship. Southern newspapers have the same exact response. And in the book, I even quote some Southern diaries where Confederates say, look, we're justified in seceding. Look at what Lincoln's doing. He's welcoming black people at the White House. So clearly he wants social equality and we, were, we did the right thing to get out of the country. Very good. I wanted to ask you uh,
1: about uh, a quote that's, a, that's in your book, um, because a lot has been written about, about Lincoln and his views on, on religion and faith. And I've heard historians talk about this, but I wanted to read this quote that, that you had in your book from Caroline Johnson, who was an artist. Uh, when she met with Lincoln, she told him, she said, Mr. President, I believe God has honed you out of rock for this great and mighty purpose. Many have been led away by bribes of gold, of silver, of presents, but you have stood firm because God was with you, and if you are faithful to the end, he will be with you. And I'm just wondering if, it, you know, did, did Lincoln feel that way to some degree uh, in, in your opinion, that, that, that he was standing on the, on the right side of, of God and did uh, a majority of the the people he met with there in the White House to your estimation or or maybe even in, in the country did, did they feel he was taking I know the South felt differently but felt like he was standing sort of on the right religious side of, of this particular issue because I know there's been some some writing and historians have talked about some have said that Lincoln you know had uh, uh, not as much faith as we think or that he had more faith than we think so it, Caroline Johnson's comment how did how did that sit with Lincoln did he feel like he was on the religious right side of this issue with with, with slavery and emancipation coming in those issues.
2: Yeah, my view on this is different from people like Alan Gelzo or I think Michael Burlingame. My view is that Lincoln has a religious transformation during the war, that the national bloodletting causes him to see things differently than he had before 1861. He was raised in a primitive Baptist home and at a primitive Baptist church, but from a very early age, he would mock Christianity. He used to stand on on stumps when he was a little boy. He would listen to the sermon and then go home and stand on a stump and repeat the sermon, sort of parodying it and parroting it out to his friends. And I think his father beat him at some point for doing this. And by the time he was a young adult, when he ran for Congress in 1846, people were charging him with infidelity. And he had to publish a handbill saying, no, I'm not an infidel. I'm not a scoffer at religion. And, you know, he was reading Enlightenment thinkers as a young man. He was reading people like Thomas Paine who were critical of Christianity. And I think that those things were very influential in his life. But then the war comes, and I think that that just transforms the way he thinks about God and the role of providence in the world and the role, the, the importance of the Bible. And if you look at what Lincoln says to Black visitors these are very spiritual conversations. Many of the black visitors who come to meet with him are ministers from different denominations to be sure, but they come and they're quoting the Bible to him and he's quoting the Bible. He knew scripture forward and backwards. And and I think that by the end of the war, you see that he has a very profound view of God's place in the world. And I would by no means say he's a evangelical born again, Christian, but I do think he comes to understand God in a way that's different than he did before. I think he had almost a deist view of God as a young man. Whereas I think by 1865, he sees God as being intimately connected in, in what's going on and orchestrating what's going on. And, and he, it, it's interesting in his second inaugural address in talking about the North and the South, he said, both read the same Bible and pray to the same God. And, and each invokes his aid against the other. And what Lincoln essentially gets at is both sides claim God is on our side. And he essentially says, but maybe we have to realize that God is doing self, something else in this war that's, and we need to worry about being on God's side rather than, you know, saying God is on our side. And, and you know, most Christian ministers weren't thinking that deeply about things then. And so I think, I, think there's a really interesting transformation and I tr- that takes place during the war. And I try to show how interactions with African-Americans help push that forward. One
1: interaction with uh, an African-American I wanted to ask you about because we're running short on time here, but uh, is Daniel Alexander Payne, who was one of my my, my favorite people. You, you have so many wonderful people you introduce us to uh, that come and speak with Lincoln, but I loved his story because he was born to a free black family in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, can you tell us a little bit quickly about his story, about his life story, because he had a very interesting life and, and his meeting with Lincoln and what that conversation was like?
2: Yeah, he had been born in Charleston free, amazingly, and had gotten beaten up on one occasion and left the South. He got, I think he had gotten beaten up for, I forget the exact story now, actually, but he went to Gettysburg to get educated at the Lutheran Seminary, and then eventually becomes a, a minister and a bishop in the AME Church and a leader and president of Wilberforce University in Ohio. And he had actually gone to the White House in the 1840s to deliver a funeral sermon for a Black servant at the White House, where he, and he met President Tyler there. And Tyler was not particularly welcoming. But then in April of 1862, he goes to the White House and has a 45 minute conversation with Lincoln where he presses Lincoln to sign a law that would abolish slavery in Washington, DC. And he later wrote about this experience and he compared beating these two presidents and there was no comparison. Tyler had not treated him in a hospitable way. Lincoln did, Lincoln shook his hand, Lincoln welcomed him in and offered him a seat and this is a point that I try to make throughout the book, Lincoln shook the hand of every black visitor that came into the White House. And he shook the hands of many African-Americans who he met around Washington, DC. And this was a very different thing than any, almost any other white person would have done in that era. People, including radical abolitionists, if they were white, did not shake black hands, but Lincoln did. And I, I try to show how Lincoln was really ahead of his time in this way. So, John, as we finish up our time
1: together today, uh, if someone wants to get in contact with you to talk about uh, this book, A House Built by Slaves, or any of your other books or any of your other work that you're doing uh, on Lincoln in the Civil War period, uh, how can they reach out to you, first of all? And then secondly, where can they get copies of A House Built by Slaves?
2: My website is jonathanwhite.org. It's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N and then whitelikethecolor.org. I'm on Twitter at Civil War John, and that's J-O-N. Or if they Google for Jonathan White and Christopher Newport University, my profile will come right up and my email address is there. So any of those ways. And at my book, on my website, jonathanwhite.org, I list all of my books and link to Amazon and other sites. They're all widely available. Very good. We've been speaking
1: with Jonathan today, Jonathan White, a historian uh, and scholar at Christopher Newport University, an award-winning historian, uh, winner of the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia, uh, the Award for Outstanding Faculty and Outstanding Teaching, and he's the author of a number of award-winning books uh, on Abraham Lincoln, and his newest one is a terrific read. It's called A House Built by Slaves. It talks about Abraham Lincoln and his welcoming and meeting and conversation uh, with African-Americans inside the White House. And we just scratched the surface today. We didn't get to hardly probably a third of the things we could have talked about. But if you want to see uh, a book about how Abraham Lincoln kind of walked uh, among his people, uh, and see him as a, as a common flawed man who was united behind a singular purpose, and you want to learn more about this aspect of Abraham Lincoln's life and presidency, you really need to pick it up. Jonathan, it's a terrific book. We're so glad to have you on the program to talk about it. Thanks for coming on to share some of your information and expertise with us, and thanks so much for the conversation. We really appreciate
2: it. Thank you for having me.
1: We want to take a moment as we finish up on this episode of Now Appalachia to give a special thanks and a shout out to the executive producer of Now Appalachia and the executive producer of all the podcasts heard here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Her name is Pam Stack. We appreciate all the work and support she does to make all of these podcasts possible. And we also want to remind you that this is a copyrighted podcast that is owned and operated by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Well, that is going to do it for us this time on Now Appalachia, but please come again next time. And in the meantime, stay well. And see you someplace soon, I hope.
0: You've been listening to Now Appalachia. This is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. For questions or comments about this program, and to learn more about the host, Elliot Parker, and his books, visit his website at www.elliotparker.com. Stay tuned. More outstanding podcasts are coming your way next from the authors on the Air Global Radio Network.